This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And I want to give a special thank you to Samwise Kreider, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 377 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Matt Bell. He's the author of the short story collection A Tree or a Person or a Wall, and the novel Scrapper and in the House Upon the Dirt Between the Lake and the Woods. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Tin House, and Conjunctions, and he's also the director of the creative writing program at Arizona State University. And we'll be speaking with him today about his nonfiction book Baldur's Gate 2 from Boss Fight Books, which explores his love of Dungeons & Dragons and video games. And now here's our interview with Matt Bell. All right, so we're here with Matt Bell. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you say in the book, when I was growing up, almost everything I loved was deeply uncool and embarrassing. So tell us about that. um yeah i think so anyway you know i mean it feels like so much of uh the stuff i liked when i was a kid like dungeon dragons and um i started playing uh computer games on uh commodore 64 and we didn't have nintendo we had a turbo graphics 16 you know and had sort of different things um i grew up in rural michigan a really small town called hemlock so two hours north of detroit and I didn't have other people who were into the same stuff. You know, I didn't know other people who were reading fantasy novels or science fiction. Um, you know, I'd find stuff at the library, but I didn't find the other kids who were reading them, you know. Uh, and I think it kind of felt like they were just things I was doing by myself. I didn't have, you know, no Internet, right? There was no way to sort of find your tribe outside of the people you just happen to be in this town with. Um, so for a long time, those things felt very private. Um and when they did ex- come out in public, you know, if I took, I remember reading like Dungeon Dragons manuals in the bus and stuff, right? And uh, other kids either thought it was weird or picked on me for it. So you just kind of learned to put all that stuff away. You think things were worse in Hemlock than elsewhere in the country? I mean, I don't think so. It feels like that experience is pretty common, right? But I obviously had no point of comparison. Um, I mean, I think uh, you meet other people later in life that are coming from similar places or had the same thing. Um, I don't think it's all bad. I think there's something, it's really, really hard now to have something to yourself, right? It's hard to be into something that you don't know that other people are into because it's just so easy to find people online in that. Um, but there is something really interesting about having like a novel you love be just yours. Um, even if it doesn't always feel good, there is just like that deep engagement personally with something. Um, there are, you know, books that I was taught in grad school that, uh, I was the only person I knew who'd read them for 10 years, I'd give it to other people, but I didn't know anybody else who like knew it before me. And, and those were really private pleasures. It was weird to go to grad school and I'm like, Oh, everybody knows this book now, you know? Um, so I don't know. I think that long engagement with some of that stuff by myself was, was good. Uh, long-term I spent more time reading dungeon dragon manuals when I was a kid mm-hmm. than playing them. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Me too. I think that's a pretty common experience. I mean, yeah. <laughs> were there any um, like specific incidents of kids picking on you because you liked, fantasy and science fiction that kind of stick out in your mind? Um, I don't, yeah, not that sticks out, you know, in that kind of strong way. I mean, I, I do, I feel like when I said that about like the boss, I almost like picture it, you know, um, I do remember trying to get my, my friends to play, you know, and, and they just, uh, were not into it. It just seemed like kind of a weird way to spend time or just wanted to do other things. Um, and it was, you know, it's so much to try to explain something like Dungeon Drags to someone who's never played it from scratch when you're like 10, right? <laughs> I was just too heavy of a lift trying to get people to like sit down for the amount of time it takes to explain, you know, like second edition Dungeon Dragons to someone and then actually get them to play. Um, so I think in some ways it was more just like like total disinterest. Um Certainly the times I've, I was probably teased about it, but really like the, just that other people were not into these things that mattered a lot to you was, a, was an interesting way to sort of navigate. And I often didn't care at all about the other things people were into or I didn't know them. Um, I feel like I uh, did not have a lot of access always to like pop culture that was around me uh, just because I didn't get it or didn't get exposed to it at home. Um, so sometimes that just left a gap between me and other people, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's sort of a poignant line in the book where you say something like, I solved all these puzzles and all these different games, but the fact that my friends didn't like Dungeons and Dragons was a puzzle I never solved, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that seems true. And, you know, it's still, I think, uh, I mean, this is obviously part of the DNA of the book. Um, I still like all that stuff. I'm still into it. But I, I, I think the experience of not having other people to do it with has still made it sometimes hard for me to do it as an adult. I, I have lots of friends who play Dungeons and Dragons. I have students play Dungeons and Dragons. I, uh, I mostly don't, even though I'm still like, oh, I'm like, oh, I would like to do that. And then when the time comes, I'm like, I don't know. I just, that like weird childhood shame is still part of that makeup. And it's, it doesn't make any sense because no one cares, you know, <laughs> it's just like leftover, whatever. Uh, it's a weird thing to have like, you know, some kind of trauma trigger about because <laughs> well, it doesn't really matter and no one cares. Well, well, yeah, we'll definitely get into that more. But I mean, I, I could really relate to a lot of your story because even with some of these specific games, like you say that Heroes of the Lance was the first Dungeons yeah. and Dragons computer game you played. And that was the first Dungeons and Dragons computer game I played. And then one of my all time favorite games is Curse of the Azure Bonds. You sort of describe sitting in the back of class by yourself playing Curse of the Azure oh, Bonds. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that feels like that was definitely the first gold box game I played. Um, and that was a thing where I, I've always had a lot of uh, older older friends or adults take interest in me. And I think sometimes it was like I was maybe the first kid people taught who really knew computers. So like the teacher who was into computers would like latch on to you. Um, and that teacher gave me like a pirated copy of Curse of the Azure Bonds. Um, and I was super into it, you know, again, way too hard for me. I have no idea what happens at the end of that game. I've definitely not beat <laughs> Curse of Bonds, and they're hard to go back to, you know? Um, but, uh, but I was so entranced by it and I spent so much time playing it and trying to understand it and just, you know, making characters and wandering around the, the world. Um, so yeah, I think those, those were like worlds I spent a lot of time in or that meant a lot to me, even if I couldn't like fully parse them or engage with them. So if it was a pirated copy, what did you do about the code wheel, copy protection? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I feel like I if it wasn't that game, it was something else. I remember I used to have like weird photocopied, like <laughs> uh, someone had photocopied like every possible configuration of the wheel. She <laughs> wow. um, had this like book of code wheel combinations. Um, and then, of course, you would lose that or you'd lose pages or even your filthy like sixth grade bedroom. Um, <laughs> there are always sort of things missing. I uh, definitely grew up in a, an era of like heavy, heavy pirated games. And uh, my dad was a computer programmer, but we used his computer. So he didn't really play games. But I had cousins who like, I remember gave us like 200, you know, uh, floppy disks full of Commodore 64 games. You know, I don't think we ever bought a game for the Commodore 64, um, but played a lot of that stuff. And so it was very, very normal to have these pirated copies. And some of them had cracks supplied, right? Like you had those logos that would come up from the uh old like uh character art you know from some hacking collective that had put their stamp on the game um tons of that stuff where they removed the copy protection uh i didn't really understand that world or what that was at the time but i remember those sort of homemade logos quite a bit you know one of the formative experiences is actually when i was in sixth grade my best friend who i had played all the adventure games and all the role-playing games with growing up he's almost like my brother basically lived at our house, but he decided that he wanted to get in with the cool kids, which necessitated kind of ditching me. And in the months leading yeah. up to that, he said, you know, I, I just wanted to play Curse of the Azure Bonds all the time. And I just remember him saying, there's more to life than Curse of the Azure Bonds. And that <laughs> line is kind of burned into my brain. Um, now that I'm an adult, uh, I kind of feel like, no, there's not really. I still, that game rocks, you know, but... Right. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I've been recently, actually, I'm right now in the middle of rereading uh, the uh, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. I went camping a couple weeks ago. And I'm like, that would be a good like, campfire book. You know, this is probably where I read it as a kid the first time, um, sitting in my parents' camper or something on summer vacation. Uh, and so I'm reading it, and then, of course, it you know made me want to like play those games. And I was like, I wonder if I could beat that Heroes of the landscape now. And I remember when I was writing the Baldur's Gate book, I also like loaded it up, and I was like, I've got to be able to beat this now. I'm an adult. I'll be able to do this. It should be fine. And they're just really hard and unforgiving, you know? It's also just um, an awful game. I mean, it's not fun at all. It's really bad. Yeah, it's not worth your time. <laughs> <laughs> but the, remember the um, the portraits of the characters, right? Like, I played that game years before I read the novel. And those character portraits and the, like, CGI, CGA graphics are, like, burned into my head. Um, and it's really interesting to start like reading the book again and just find like the world that those graphics were supposed to evoke um, and did it quite. 
uh, it's really interesting to sort of engage with them again and to realize how much that still like has an emotional response for me. Right. And just to explain for, for younger listeners, so CGA graphics had four colors, which were typically black and white, <laughs> like turquoise and magenta. So, I mean, we're talking some ugly, ugly colors, combinations oh, of colors. Yeah. I mean, I know I wrote about this in the book some too, but I think that that way in which you had to bring so much of your imagination to those kind of graphics kind of to make them work, right? Um, there's a There's something similar to what you're doing when you're reading and you're, you know, the part of you that's, that's seeing and imagining as you're reading, I think works on those games too. And, uh, and they do feel so different. I mean, my memories of Baldur's Gate do not match up with <laughs> playing Baldur's Gate. Right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think the Baldur's Gate games hold up pretty well, but they, they definitely live differently in my head. Um, and that's even more true with something like maybe like Planescape or something, which I have like, I think a really strong emotional memory of, I recently played through it again. I was like, this is even a lot simpler than I remember. Like, I remember a more complex feeling, you know? It's good. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned reading, rereading the Dragonlance books, and you actually wrote your own Dungeons & Dragons tie-in novel, The Last Garrison, right? So tell us about that. Uh, yeah, I um, uh, wrote it with a friend, uh, Matthew Simmons. We wrote under the pen name Matthew Beard. We were both Matts with beards. Um, it was a pretty inventive pen name. Uh <laughs> And uh, it was it was an interesting experience. You know, I had not written I've written two other novels that are, you know, uh, I guess, literary fiction. Um, and I was writing the first one while I was writing the Dungeon Dragons book. I just finished grad school. Um, so I was sort of like and I was working as an editor at a press and I was also editing the first novel I edited. So it's this kind of weird formative time where I was doing a bunch of different things. Uh, but it was really interesting. I think. Uh, Matt and I wrote a synopsis and uh, a list of characters and sold that to Wizards of the Coast. Um, so we didn't write any of it in advance, um, which is also the only time I've ever done that. Um, and so there were challenges in, in that by itself. But it was really interesting. Uh, Wizards of the Coast sent me like a box of rule books so I could learn fourth edition so we could write an accurate novel, you know. Um, and I hadn't I don't think I ever saw third edition. So it was like, you know, a big skip from when I had played. Uh, and it was interesting to sort of try to dig in and figure that out. I think um, it's loosely skeletoned on uh, like the Seven Samurai. Uh, so it has that sort of gather the party, go off and, and save the village kind of set up. Um, and I think that Matt, I think, pitched it to me so that it was it'll be really easy. We'll build it on the structure. We'll, we'll be able to work on it. It'll be Seven Samurai with elves. Um, and, uh, and it kind of is. I saw the uh, remake of the Magnificent Seven like a year ago, and I was like, "Why do I know this plot so well?" And I was like, "Oh, right, because I wrote one of these." Um, <laughs> and so it had, you know, sort of this classic sort of structure. Um, but it was interesting, and it was in some ways very, very similar to the kind of early writing I tried to do. I mean, hopefully more sophisticated, but in process, when I was like a kid reading all those Dungeon Dragon books, like starting from a list of characters, like knowing this person is a seventh level dwarven cleric is kind of not the way I would normally start writing a piece of fiction. <laughs> um, so it was, it was interesting to do that. Um, and then of course, editing was totally different than any other kind of editing. Cause it was the kind of licensed continuity work that I had not done before. Um, our editor would give us notes like, well, that's not really how a fireball spell works, you know? Um, and we'd have to go in and do these sort of game rule fixes, which I thought was uh, an interesting challenge that they were actually really, really concerned that it seemed that it fit with the current version of Dungeons and Dragons rules, um, which is a different kind of work. So I don't miss, I have a lot of students who are really interested in doing that. I'm glad I've had that kind of experience because it is so different than other kinds of writing. But I mean, you say in the book, uh, there was still a big part of me that felt dumb working on a D and D book. Yeah. So this, this has been maybe a problem with, I mean, kind of happened the Baldur's Gate book and with the last garrison is my this is that that weird shame combination right my enthusiasm for the idea is always really high i'm like oh i absolutely want to do that i'm excited to do it but it's you there's no fast way to write a book at least not for me like it still takes a lot of time and energy and there'd be that this like doubting sort of part of my brain they'd be like why am i spending all this time on this thing i should be doing like i'm air quoting here of course like my real work you know um but you know i published seven books and two of them are about dungeons and dragons like that's part of my real work <laughs> Uh, like it's clearly part of my real work. It's it's crazy to pretend like that's not a thing I've done. 
Um, and I think in a, in a public way, like I don't care. I wouldn't write it under a pen name now. We're just under our names. I talk about these books all the time. Um, the Baldur's Gate book has a completely different audience than my other stuff. And it's really exciting to get emails from people who are, you know, growing up playing this stuff and, and had similar experiences or, or younger people now who are, you know, feeling similarly about it. But there's still that, that, that lag about half of the project. I would, I would sort of flinch from it. Um, but I think it was like, like my book was going to come out and people were going to like tease me for being into Dungeons and Dragons as a, I'm 39, right? I'm 39 years old and someone's going to tease me about it. No, <laughs> no one cares. Um, but it's still like, I mean, every, every artistic process has its like, uh, passage through doubt built into it. Right. Um, and for these projects, that's been the, the thing that's had to be pushed through. Um, and I think both times I was helped. My editor on the Ballers Gabe book, Gabe Durham, is, who runs Boss by Books, is amazing and really uh, helped me find what uh, I was maybe most interested and most drawn to inside the project as I was writing. Um, and then Matt Simmons, who I wrote the other book with, uh, was really great and I think really carried me through some of those moments where I was like, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Um, and I'm glad in both cases that the books you know, are, are done and are what they are. It's interesting with the Dungeons and Dragons tie-in novels because I, you know, I, I I read about thirty of them. I think there's a couple that I I think are quite good, although I haven't reread them, you know, in twenty years, so it's it's hard for right. me to say now. Um, but I, I wouldn't have thought that I had such a huge attachment to them. But my my girlfriend and I just moved to Austin, and I had to pack up all my books and give away ninety percent of them. And when I looked at the pile of books that I absolutely couldn't bear to part with, like. The biggest stack was the Dungeons and Dragons tie-in novels, so right. <laughs> it kind of says something. Yeah, in the in the book I mentioned that I um, uh, had this like box of them. They just kept moving from house to house to house. You know, I just kept taking them with me, but then I wouldn't put them out. And I, I was like, uh, you know, I don't know. There's I'm sitting in my office right now. And there's 500 books on the shelf, and it's like I wouldn't like put those out for some reason. Um, like again, like I don't know. People are going to see them or whatever. In this house. Um, when I sit in my office, I got them all out and there's, you know, the ones I still have are all there. And I have my, uh, the dark sun books and the Dragonlance books. And, um, I've got, you know, the, those, uh, lone wolf game books. I really loved. I've got like a complete set of those. And I just put all that stuff in here. That's part of who I am. I, I want that stuff with me. Um, and there's a reason I haven't gotten rid of them. You know, there's some of those books I haven't read in 30 years and I'm probably not likely to, um, but seeing them is, is a kind of, friendliness you know i'm glad they're around yeah i mean when i was when i was starting my books i was kind of like well you know if i ever need a copy of james joyce or marcel proust or right. gabriel garcia marquez <laughs> i can go to any library or bookstore and, and pick one up whereas you know it might be kind of hard to come by a copy of the legend of huma uh, right <laughs> yeah i mean i think uh and you know for me there are also like experiences i had with my brother you know i write a lot about the book um we were two years apart we read all those books together um, we never read at the same time. So sometimes we'd get a new one and you'd be like waiting for the other person to get done with it. Right. And we're both very fast readers anyway. Um, but, uh, but those are shared experiences for us too. And I think getting rid of them would be for me, like giving up that experience where the same thing, like if I got rid of my copy of Ulysses, it wouldn't be like, um, somehow devaluing a relationship, my relationship with my brother or something. Right. It's, it's just doesn't have the same meaning for me. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's been nice to sort of put that stuff out and be like, that's part of uh, my life. And we just had less books when we were kids, right? Like, I just used to reread them over and over and over. So uh, I really loved that first set of Dark Sun tie-in novels, uh, the Prism Prism Pentad, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I've read those tons of times. We really loved that Dark Sun campaign world. We spent a lot of time playing it. I, again, probably not playing in it. We spent a lot of time reading the rule books yeah, and talking about it. dreaming about playing in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which we so yeah, I think like it's there's a part of my imagination that does feel sort of attached to those those books that uh, probably had a stronger influence on me than other things. You say that there was a your favorite part of the Last Garrison is a Samuel Beckett inspired passage. Could you talk about that? Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It was uh, Beckett's a favorite writer of mine, and I. I at the end of grad school, I did an independent study where I read all, like, not all Beckett. I read, like, 10 Beckett novels in a semester or something. Um, and one of the ways I sort of was amusing myself as I was writing, uh, this is not this, I would do this in my other work, too. Um, I'm often trying to make something I like from another book. It's very readerly, I think, in the book I'm writing. Like, there's, you know, so uh, 
Beckett style of sort of repetition, I, I find very enjoyable. And so there's a passage in The Last Garrison when they're going up a mountain that's sort of uh, trapped with these illusions. Um, and, and it becomes very like this sort of repetition of the sort of movements that they're doing as they're sort of coming in out of it. It has a, a very humorous sort of repetition to it that I found really pleasing. Um, I wrote a couple other sort of imitations like that into the book, but they didn't survive. There was a, a retelling of a very Cormac McCarthy-esque fall of the elves. The editor was like, no. Apparently <laughs> <laughs> couldn't blood meridian the middle of my uh, Dungeons & Dragons novel. Uh, but it was fun to write, too. Uh, and so, yeah, in some ways, that's just part of the writing process for me, I think, is you trying to trying to do some of the moves I love in other books in my own way. Uh, but yeah, that Beckett has to good. I've read from the book a couple of times at, at different readings, and I've, I've always read that part. It has a sort of humor to it I really enjoy. Uh, I'm not always the funniest writer. It was fun to be that way in that space. Uh, well, because there's this really interesting intersection between the sort of the geek worlds and the literary worlds. And um, yeah. the, the part in the book that really brings that into focus for me is, is your relationship with Gordon Lish. And you say... Um, my advance made it possible for me to attend without too much financial burden, most likely making me the only person ever to pay for one of Lish's classes with money earned writing about elves. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, it was a, that was a weird summer. So that's that same summer. I'm, I'm sorry, I was editor. I'm trying to write my first book. I'm in this Gordon Lish class. I graduated from my MFA a couple weeks before I started it. We sold the book, The Last Garrison, The Wizards of the Coast, like my second to last week of grad school or something. Um, so it was kind of a funny thing to take out with me. And uh, that class is at the Center for Fiction in Manhattan. And Lish would go like two hours before class and he'd hang out in this restaurant sort of nearby. Um, and it was kind of unspoken thing. You could go in there and work with him one on one if you wanted, uh, which I never did. Uh, but I'd see other people there when I was walking by. Um, and one day I kind of went by and I didn't see him in there. So I was like, OK, I'm just going to pop in there and get some to eat for class. But he wasn't there working with somebody else. So I kind of hunkered off in the corner and ate my sandwich and worked on my Dungeons and Dragons novel. Um, and at some point he was like, Bell, come over here. Let, let, show me what you're working with. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I think he, you know, gave me some kind of like, yeah, like, he's always proud of you if you like stood up to him or something. Right. So it was like this sort of like, all right, good job. Good knowing you need to go it alone. And I was like, yes, absolutely. That's what's happening here. It's just my literary integrity that's keeping me from coming over and working with you right now. Uh, <laughs> well, and just he, never, he never would have let me forget it. I mean, he would have hated that I was doing it so much. For people who might not know, so, so Gordon Lish is this famously brutal editor. Um, and you can tell me if this is true or not. My understanding is that, Gord, uh, is that Raymond Carver's style is known as minimalism because there's so much you know, left unsaid and that a lot of that is just because Gordon Lish hated stuff he wrote and just chopped out giant blocks of it. Yeah. In theory, he was, he was editing him. Um, but it's, it's very aggressive editing. Uh, you know, it was a famous Carver story. Like what we talk when we talk about love is very minimal and has a lot of stuff left out. Um, after Carver died, they republished it as beginners and you can see what it looked like before the cuts were done. Um, and so you really get a sense of what his, his style was. Um, he's famous in class and he did this in ours, um, for, he makes everybody read something they've written and he just stops you when he feels like you've made a mistake or you've sort of flinched in some ways. So to, to get through a paragraph in class was sometimes difficult. Um, it, you know, there's a lot of sort of myth around it. I learned a lot in that class. He, he gave like five hour long lectures, uh, without breaks. Um, really smart guy. Uh, but yeah, it's a pretty like aggressive performance of sort of, teaching you by um yeah i don't know what the word for it is well, but yeah it, it, very very often one sentence he'd be like stop it you know <laughs> i mean do you feel that he could have been just as effective as a teacher and been nicer or was his sort of um tough love approach inseparable from his effectiveness as a teacher i don't know i mean i think partly people go there for that right it's like there's a trial by fireness to it um uh, he would call what he would call it his teaching a performance uh, himself. And I think that's really what's there. You're partly there to learn. You're partly there for the show. Um, I think the people want the chance to survive that, right? Um, teaching uh, creative writing classes don't work that way very often. And for good reason. I mean, I would never want to teach that way myself. Um, but yeah, people were very, very proud of it. He's the most charismatic person I've, I've ever met. You know, talk about words I learned from Dungeons and Dragons, right? Um, 
I remember like the first time I saw him speaking, I was just like, Oh, like that's what people mean when like, like a cult of personality, like that's real charisma. Um, it's, it's a personality that bends you toward it in a way that I do not normally experience people. I'm not particularly like overwhelmed by famous people generally. And, uh, I was very resistant to that part of him and still felt that I wanted to please him more than it made me happy to do. Um, and that's a very rare feeling. So, so I don't know. It's, it's complicated. Like it's really, it's really specific to him. It's probably not something somebody else could or should do. Um, I'm glad I saw it. So many of my favorite writers sort of passed through his classrooms. I was glad to get to see it. Um, and I, you know, didn't need a second dose. <laughs> well, because I feel like I've, I've taken a lot of creative writing classes and I feel like a lot of them, you know, the everyone's just like, oh, this is good. You know, maybe you could fiddle with this thing, but like, you're a good writer. I like this, you know, and a lot of then students come out of these workshops and go to submit their work and it all gets rejected. And they're kind of like, wait, what's going on? I thought I was good. And why is my work getting rejected? And that they might have benefited from people being a little bit more, you know, blunt with them or. Um, yeah, maybe, you know. Yeah, I think um, I will say I never I never saw him praise something that I didn't also think was like really extraordinary. Like he really reserves his praise. Like when you earn it, it's real. Um, I did, of course, sometimes hear him say no to something that I was like, well, I think that was probably fine. But uh, but the standard was high. And part of what he does is just make it like a sacred thing. Like you're not screwing around like it's life and death in, in his class. Um, and that by itself pushes you in a way that, again, not all creative writing classes do. And, um, but it's 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 bad for as many people as it is good for people. Um, I uh, I probably shouldn't tell other people's stories from the class, but there were people that I felt like were were really good writers and the process of that sort of way of, of interacting with them in class and interacting with them sort of personally outside of class uh, was in the way of their work for a long time after the class even. Uh, and that's too bad because that's shouldn't be the goal. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's, it's mixed, but it is like the, yeah, harshest sort of environment to sort of test your work in. Um, and he is looking for kind of a specific kind of thing, but like I said, I'm glad to have seen it. Um, I feel like some of the stuff he teaches, I I talk about a lot and think about a lot. Um, I took tons and tons of notes and it was, uh, it was a good experience. It was good right after my MFA for the same reason you're describing. Like uh, my MFA program was great. Um, but that, that kind of intense difficulty of that right afterwards felt like the right next thing in some ways. Um, so, so yeah, I, I'm glad I was there. And like I said, it really is kind of a weird thing to have gotten to. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to do it if I hadn't written the Dungeon Dragons novel. Um, so kind of a funny, which is a funny year in a lot of ways. Well, you mentioned life and death. Apparently he was just constantly reminding you that you're going to die in order to motivate you to write. Yeah, to some extent, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think this is, is unique to him, but, uh, you know, if you're a secular person, uh, one way toward immortality might to be to leave something behind that people still talk about and still think about. And then that way you're, you're there too. Um, if the art you make is being discussed a hundred years later and you won't know about it, but like your ideas are still in the world, your personality is still in the world, the way you saw the world, saw the world is still there. Um, and I think that was some of what he was, was saying, like to make a thing that would last and would matter is, is not to vanish, you know? Um, and that's pretty dramatic, but at the same time, there's obviously truth to that too. I probably shouldn't admit this, but you know, when I'm working on this podcast, a lot of the times I'll think, you know, is this going to be clear to people a thousand years in the future? Or, uh, you know, I just imagine like grad students like going through the files and seeing like, oh, he made an edit here. I wonder what he cut out and stuff like that. Right, right, absolutely, yeah. Um, I don't think that's a weird thought. I think we all wonder what of ours is going to sort of last or stick around. Um, things seem so ephemeral and fast moving. Um, I, yeah, I think that's a, a fine thought, um, and probably an important one. It's a reason, it's one of the reasons to do all of this stuff is to, uh, I used to do more book criticism than I do now. And I used to do a lot of interviews, uh, not in written form, not in podcast form with other writers. And some of it was just trying to like get the things I, I liked and cared about in front of more people. Right. Um, obviously some of your, your podcast is the same thing. And that was just a way of trying to give them like more space in the world to let them take up more space. That seems like an important task. 
Now, you said that, you know, for, I don't know, 10 years or something that you avoided writing anything fantastical. Um, and then you sort of took a swerve back into that and you felt like it really improved your writing. Could you talk about what made you kind of take that journey? Yeah, I think uh, I think the move away, which I think is pretty common. I see students all the time. Um, was was me trying to uh, like be serious or be like a serious writer um, or be taken seriously. And that meant I had to do that kind of work. Some of it was just the people that I loved when I was in my early 20s were realist writers like Dennis Johnson, uh, Raymond Carver was like somebody, Amy Hempel, um, people like that, that were, they're not doing the kind of fantastic writing. Some of it was just that it wasn't what I was like imitating at the time or learning from. Um, but I really think some of it was just me trying to like prove that I was like a serious literary writer um, for whatever reason. And again, to who? I don't know. But uh, so I did that for, for a while. Um, but of, and I, in a similar vein in that era, like it's probably the only period of my life where I, I didn't play video games at all. Right. Like I sort of like got rid of my consoles and I wasn't playing anything. And I think there was a bunch of that stuff that just got put aside. Um, and then at some point it all started filtering back in. I, I think I uh, a lot of the literary fiction I like best is very genre reflected. People like Jonathan Lethem and, and Michael Shaben. Um, writer Brian Evanson uh, is a really big uh, influence on me who's, who interfaces with sort of uh, horror a lot. Um, and I started sort of seeing these ways that I could could be in conversation with the things I really like and still maybe do some of the other stuff that I was interested in uh, on the art level. Um, and that's really just kind of stuck. I think, you know, my uh, my first novel is is has sort of a mythological framework has a lot of magical things and i think of it as a myth um the second novel is a kind of crime novel uh just finished a, a new book that has a takes place over a thousand years and is a pretty heavy science fictional element um i i think in some ways one of my goals is maybe become to write a book in every genre that i i love like i i feel like i want to have my crime novel and my myth and my fairy tale and my fantasy novel and my, you know, and so on. Um, and that seems really exciting. I think it was, I was trying to write with one hand tied behind my back when I wasn't doing it. It's like so much of your imagination comes from the art you love and the art you've taken in. And I was essentially trying to start at 20 as if I had never read another book by giving up everything I read to that point, you know, um, and it just didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, I get why I did it, but I'm really, really glad to sort of feel a little more whole and to have both those things in my life. Probably writing the Baldur's Gate book is part of that process. I think um, even though that same doubt came into that, I think it was a way of sort of publicly stating that I wanted these two parts of myself healed, you know? You, meant, you mentioned Dennis Johnson as a non-fantastical author. I read a book of his called Fiskadoro, which I thought was a pretty over- Oh, yeah, yeah. Novel. Yep. Had that not come out yet, or were you not thinking about it? No, no, I've read that too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that book's wild. I like Fiskadoro a lot. Um, yes, and that's a good example of, of his book that's like much more uh, in, in sort of a different mood. But yeah, that's a cool book. Very strange. Yeah. I mean, I thought that there was some... Fiscadoro influence. You had me read some of your um, short stories. I mean, you didn't force me to. I, I asked yeah. you uh, to, <laughs> to recommend some that you know you, that you thought would be more, um, you know, uh, would more appeal to a, a science fiction fans. And so the ones that you recommended were Receiving Tower, Inheritance, and Cataclysm Baby. Um, I did think there was some some Dennis Johnson influence um, that I detected there. But um, could you just talk about those stories and you know why they might appeal to science fiction fans? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would say there's probably Dennis Johnson influence in, in everything of mine. I think the, uh, the first short stories I published were essentially like Jesus's son fan fiction, right? <laughs> um, it's just like, well, Jesus' son had three more stories and they weren't as good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think that, that influence is always going to be there. I'll be happy to have it. Um, yeah, I think all those stories, actually the receiving tower started out, it, it takes place in this like Arctic military installation, as you know, um, I actually think that story started, um, from playing, uh, Fallout 3 on, on the Xbox, um, in Fallout 3 in like a far corner of the, the map, there's these big, like, I think they're just towers with satellite dishes on them, which is kind of what the compound is in the book. It's been a long time since I've, I've played that, but, um, there's not a reason to go there. They're like in a part of the map where there isn't a quest and there's, there's sort of some computers in there with 
messages, but there, as far as I know, it's not sort of clear what happened there. Um, and I, but I really like them and I like spent a lot of time in that part of the, the sort of game, you know, how you just roam around those games, making your own fun. Um, and I, I think I had a dream about them and I was like, all right, maybe I, I'll try to write something there. Um, and so I, I think that story emerged directly from sort of playing video games. Um, Inheritance has a sort of post-apocalyptic uh, world where people can't die. I was sort of trying to write this like Western, apocalyptic Western kind of thing. Uh, that actually came out of a novel attempt. I wrote about 150 pages of a novel um, that didn't go. And that story is sort of what's left of it. Um, so there's a bunch more world there that's not in there that I uh, think about, but can never really find the story, you know? Uh, so it's just that one sort of incident that makes it that story. Cataclysm Baby I wrote in grad school. It was one of the last things I wrote in school. Um, I wrote the first, it's, uh, people listening, it's a, uh, abacadarium. So there's 26 pieces. They're all alphabetical order. They all have three names and they're all these post-apocalyptic parenting stories. I wrote the first one in a poetry class in grad school. It's a little prose poem. And as soon as I titled it with the three A names, it just sort of suggested the, that there could be these other 25. Um, and I started trying to write more of them. That was a really fun project because I, I like, uh, I remember there was a language conceit to it where I was thinking about trying to write these micro futures, trying to write futures really fast. And one way of, of making them strange was to try to write about the future using archaic language and archaic sort of diction, kind of a King James version of the Bible kind of rhythm. Um, and it was a lot of fun trying to work on that, like trying to write these, these, uh, different cataclysms using an older style of language. Uh, and I think that by itself was enough to just kind of keep me going as I was, as I was figuring out which 26 stories I wanted to, to tell. I was curious in particular, one of them, the, the U is the letter U is Omer Ulrich Ursa. And it's about kind of werewolves or, or wolf men. And yes. there, I, I gather there are no more human women. And so um, they kind of ha can only breed with, you know, other wolf people. And so their, their yeah. um, descendants are getting more and more wolf-like. I was just curious if there's any any more to say about where that idea came from. I think, uh, I mean, beyond just general, uh, probably like canthrope joy, uh, <laughs> I think some of them some of them generated, I wrote the stories and I had to find the titles for them. Um, but at some point I understood that I was going to have this, this sort of naming structure pretty early on. And so I, I letters like you, there are just less names. X, there's less names. Um, and so some of them I wrote, like the three names, just kind of, I thought they sounded good together. And of course, Ursa is bear, right? Um, and so I think that's where I got to that one. Really, the title generated the story. It was, it was looking for something that would match that title as opposed to sort of starting from a, an idea out in the world. A um, lot of bears in my fiction. The, hmm. the main antagonist of the first novel is a giant sentient bear that the husband in the novel is uh, sort of struggling with most of the book. Um, that's, I think I come back to that time and time again. So, uh, yeah, so I think that sort of one was generated by its title as opposed to its content sort of appearing first. When you say lycanthrope joy or, or lycanthrope something that you were a particular fan of or. Yeah. I mean, at least in the, I mean, I, I uh, yeah, probably certainly like a D and D way. I remember being fascinated in like second edition D and D with all the like other things you could turn into half of, um, <laughs> and wear panthers and things running around. Uh, there's a Robert McCammon novel called The Wolf Sour that I loved when I was younger. Um, I haven't read it, maybe I still love it. I feel like I've read it. I really like McCammon's work. Um, called, but it's called The Wolf Sour, and it's about a werewolf spy in World War II. Um, so it's like a James Bond werewolf novel that's pretty great. Uh, yeah, and I think in sort of general, any of that stuff is kind of fun. Um, it seems that there's a lot you can sort of do with that. I'm really, really a core sort of part of my sort of readerly self is, is myths and fairy tales and stuff to you. And I think anything that transforms into something else is, is good story. You know, um, I think I, uh, yeah, I think I just sort of generally like that a lot. I'm trying to think of werewolf things I really like. I mean, I love some of the, uh, American werewolf in Paris and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think just generally they were always something that I found kind of creepy and, and mysterious and fun to think about. Well, when you mentioned the monster manual, I mean, yeah, like they would have like wear rats and I think wear pigs. Right. <laughs> um, and you know, yeah, yeah. As a kid, you just read and you're like, oh, most people only know about werewolves, but actually, there's all these <laughs> other things that only I know about. Right? Yeah, the secret knowledge. Yeah, 
Oh, and you're the dungeon master, right? So you have you have all this knowledge that you are keeping from your no players that you have. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I think I loved loved all those books, and it just so there was so much imagination around that. Um, I mentioned Joe Dever's uh, Lone Wolf books uh, when we were in. I must have been like a freshman in high school or something. So this is like maybe 1994 or something like that. Uh, we got a scanner at home and uh, real slow, didn't make great scans, but we were, we were pretty into it. We were just scanning a lot of things. And at some point I decided that I would adapt the Lone Wolf books into like my own D&D campaign setting. And I scanned in all the like ink drawings of the monsters and stuff and made my own monster manual pages and um, I mean, this is just what I was doing with my free time and, uh, and I still have a copy of it. Like yeah, it sort of survived and there's just one paper copy of it and I still have it in my office. Um, and it was just an immense amount of work that was just like, I really just, I think a way of loving those books, right? Um, it's just a way of like interacting with them in a different way than just reading them. Is that the thing that you thought it was a hundred pages long and then your brother's like, actually, no, it's three pages long. No, that, that must be something else that there, I can't remember what that is now. Um, no, there actually is quite a bit of, of that particular thing. Um, but yeah, there is some stuff we made up that seems in our brains again, huge. And like we spent all this time on it and it's, you know, nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, I've certainly been there. I, I had this, this like quote unquote novel that existed in my head that, you know, was on my computer and I thought it was about 112 pages long. And then I went back and looked at it years later and it was actually like 12 pages long. So, <laughs> but think how much time you spent on those 12 pages and how much there was there. And those projects were so exciting to me. My hand-drawn maps, you know, and uh, I don't think I could hand-draw a map now, but I could when I was a kid because I was looking at so many fantasy maps, right? Um, it, I, I feel like there was a time when I was a pretty good, you know, pretty good, bad fantasy cartographer. <laughs> um, I could throw up a mountain range that didn't make sense anywhere, you know? Yeah. Well, so say more about the, the Baldur's Gate 2 book. Like, how did that come about? Did you approach them or did they approach you or how'd that work? I think I approached them. I, Gabe Durham, who's the editor there, I've known for, for a long time through, uh, I think, uh, sort of indie literature circles. Um, he's a really interesting guy and, and a great writer himself. And, uh, and so, yeah, he was starting this, this press. And it's, the first two books were written by uh, people I also know, by Michael Kimball and Ken Bauman, wrote books on uh, Galaga and Earthbound. And it's just, you know, it's such a smart idea that kind of work with the 33 and a third books, so single volume books about classic video games. Um, and immediately when they launched the series, like, I would love to write one of those. I feel like that seems like a, a good project for me. Um, and I was finishing up my second novel, Scrapper, and uh, maybe looking toward what was going to happen after it. Um, and I thought writing a nonfiction book would be a nice break. Um, and again, like break, it's going to be really easy, right? Um, and I started thinking about what I wanted to write about, and, and Dungeons and Dragons seemed fruitful. Um, the Baldur's Gate games were, were games that had, had meant a lot to me, and I, I played several times. Um, but yeah, I sort of, sort of reached out to Gabe and said, you know, I, I wondered if you'd be interested in making me writing a book for the series, and we talked about some some possibilities for different games. I think it seemed pretty clear that Baldur's Gate was a good choice for them. They hadn't done something like that. And also that I just had a lot of like satellite material with like writing the last garrison sort of growing up playing and these kind of stories of my, my brother's relationship that feels really tied to it. Um, so it seemed like a good fit. I'm trying to remember what else I, I pitched them. Um, we talked about maybe doing Planescape Torment instead, which I also think would have been an interesting book. I really love that game. You know, so much of the stuff would have been the same, but I think it, I think for whatever reason they were more interested in Baldur's Gate. Talked about Dark Souls, possibly, um, which I really, really love those games. Um, I actually think that would be a really hard book to write. I know there is a book or two out on it, but I, I didn't know that I had the, the stuff that went around it. The sort of half memoir, half criticism blend um, was easier to talk about. They hadn't done anything that was this narrative. Uh, the challenge of talking about the story of Baldur's Gate is, is its own separate issue as opposed to game mechanics. You imagine the book about Galaga does not have this problem, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I honestly, I was wondering, like, how can you even write a book about Galaga or Super Mario Brothers Two or something? I, I'd be curious to, right. to read what people actually say about, that fills up a book. And they, right, those are both really good books. I think those are those both work really well, uh, but they obviously have sort of a different take. Um, so yeah, so sort of us sort of deciding together what I might write write about. Um, yeah, and then just sort of agreed to to do it, which is great. Um, 
And I, I initially wrote a version of the book that was about twice as long as the published version. Um, and that's pretty normal for me. I do that with novels too. I, I write long and cut back. Um, but I just kind of got lost in it a little bit. I and mean, there's so much you could write about. And there's so much just like, at some point, just trying to like summarize the story succinctly in a way that makes sense to someone who doesn't play Dungeons and Dragons or hasn't played this particular game as its own challenge. It just, you know, all the words sound made up because they are. And, you know, it like sort of, does, like the importance of the things you're doing in the game don't make any sense outside of it, you know. But but so the plan was always to make it so personal and confessional, or did that develop as you wrote it? I think in the series the the blend is different from book to book, but they're they're all sort sort of some blend of of critical and and personal, um, and that that ratio is different in different books. And I think mine is probably higher on the personal than some others. Um, but like Ken Bauman's Earthbound book is, is pretty personal. Um, there's a book in the series on Jagged Alliance too, and that one's like really almost not at all, right? It's really, there's a lot of interviews with the developers and it's a different kind of book. Um, but I think for me, it was always, those things, things were always going to be there, um, which is also part of the reason to write it really is I, I think I, there is a part of my life I think about a lot and had not written about very much. And so it was interesting to try to do that. Some of that was the most fun. I mean, I, I solved some false memories, I guess. Like uh, my, I had my dad's, the blue box and, and red box, like uh, D&D starter kits, the basic and expert set, um, were the first ones we played on. And my dad had this story about where they had come from, that he bought them in college because um, people were playing. And uh, But then I just started, like, doing the math, and, like, they didn't come out when he was in college. They came out when I was, like, three, and my dad had been out of college for a couple of years, and um, and so we kind of went back to him and we're sort of pushing on some of those memories and, uh, and we just found that he's like, no, you're right. What really it was, I bought these books when he was 26 or 27 and he had the, um, I'm going to forget the, the kid's name now, but the James, uh, James Dallas Egbert. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, and he had read about that and he thought, I want to know what it is about this thing that can make someone like, you know, he had the, the full like myth version, right? makes them like lose their mind in that way. Um, and my, you know, my dad wore a three piece suit to work at Dow Corning as a computer programmer in the, you know, seventies and eighties. And I had this picture of him when we were six years old coming home and like reading these Dungeons and Dragons books after work. And it's so incongruous to me. I just, I can't really picture it. Um, but it's really interesting that it was much later in life than I thought it was. And I really had this interest in other people's fantasy imaginings to some extent, which I just hadn't really had that access to with him. Um, so it was, it was really interesting to go back and sort of get to tease out those memories. My brother's always stayed really attached to that part of our life. And like, he still has, he has most of our fantasy books. I think he still has a lot of those D and D rule books and stuff at his house. Um, and so he it was also fun just to talk to him a lot and sort of engage our, our lives there. We don't live near each other anymore, you know, and it was, it was exciting to get to do that work. Well, I was curious, yeah, because you, you, you mentioned you have this brother who it seems like never went through any of this phase of, like, feeling embarrassed about loving fantasy or any of that. And I was just curious, is that just your the personalities you were born with, or did you have any different experiences? Or, like, what, what do you think you guys went on such different trajectories in your 20s? Yeah, I think um, – I don't know entirely. I think part of it is – I, uh, I always, my whole life, like wanted to like grow up like as fast as I could. Right. I just like wanted to be like one of the grownups and I wanted to, uh, uh, be taken seriously as a kid. Like I, the a thrill for me is even like a really young kid was like to sit with my like dad and my uncles and like be part of the conversation, you know? And so I think there was some, uh, of just trying to like get rid of some of that stuff or hide it, you know, from view so that I could, you know, be grown up or something. Um, I think uh, one thing that might be a little bit of it in the sort of college era is I, I dropped out of college a couple of times and, and went back later. I, I finished college when I was 26. Um, and I think there was a, maybe a need sometimes to be serious and in, 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 to make up for that or something, right? Um, or I was going to uh, prove my worth in this other way. You know, I, I started writing seriously when I was dropped out of college. And I think it was like this other place I could succeed if I wasn't going to succeed at college, right? Um, so maybe that's part of it, but there really has no sort of break. I mean, I think there's, he just stayed with it. He also, uh, not that my, my wife is, was keeping me from doing any of this stuff, you know, uh, uh, she's 
not a person who grew up with like fantasy stuff and isn't necessarily as into it on her own. Um, although she got very, very into Game of Thrones. So, you know, I think some of that has changed recently. But uh, but I didn't talk about this stuff around her. But my brother married a woman who's equally into video games and into Dungeons and Dragons and, and fantasy things that, you know, we used to play Dungeons and Dragons at their house when we lived together in Ann Arbor. Um, and so it was also like his social situation, his romantic situation, all had room for that. And it wasn't something that he had to, he felt like he had to give up. I don't think I ever had to give up anything, but he felt like he had, didn't feel like he had to give it up. Like maybe I felt like I did. Um, so I think that's part of it. You know, he sort of stayed around other people who were still doing that stuff. He also had friends in high school and, and middle school who were into it, and I didn't. And I think that's part of it too. Um, I just didn't have the social network to sustain it at the era that I probably would have had to. Um, but I'm back in, you know, I, I play video games all the time. I'm reading a lot of science fiction these days. Um, my, uh, I turned, my birthday was this last week and, uh, my wife, Jessica bought me the, uh, fifth edition, uh, essential set that has rules for playing with two people, which I think is her saying, we're going to play Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> together. Um, so, you know, like it's kind of fun to sort of engage that again. And, um, it seems, uh, interesting like to be 15 years into my marriage and be like oh now maybe we'll play Dungeons and dragons together <laughs> but that seems really exciting kind of fun um you know i think uh uh it's interesting how it's come and gone but i think that it's this things are back in my life feels like a joy to me um i really do like that part of my imagination it's nice to get to engage with it again i mean is part of it that you've been in this academic environment where it sounds like there are more people who aren't into fantasy and aren't into video games yeah, that's, I mean, that's probably true to some extent. It's, you know, the thing is, though, students are, are totally into it, right? Um, I taught a, a class last year on uh, climate fiction and eco-fabulism and the new weird for undergrads and had, you know, 25 writers in the room. Um, and it was all science fiction and fantasy novels that were dealing with environmental things to some extent. Uh, and the students were so in just because they were really being encouraged to, to write this kind of stuff they loved where I think in a lot of creative writing classes, I mean, you know this, right? Like students are sort of told they can't write fantasy stories. They can't write science fiction stories. Um, and so they're really getting to do that. Uh, the last day of class, um, the entire class, uh, cosplayed as characters from worlds of their own making. Uh, and so we tell these students dressed as like their own characters in class and, um, and they were thrilled. They were so happy, you know, uh, to get to do this kind of stuff in that environment. Um, and I think that's, that's a lesson to remember. I'm teaching a class next fall on world building. Um, and I know that class is going to be full and people are going to be really into it. It's going to be really exciting. So I think the students are the place where like, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of my kind of people to sort of interact with. Um, it's true. The grad students too, who are just, Again, like I think they just it's more popular now. You know, if you're 21, um, you, I mean, God, how many years of like Marvel movies have we had now? You know, we had 10 years of Game of Thrones. Like you show up the end of undergrad at 21. You had 10 years of that stuff being the most popular stuff in the world. You know, they all grew up with Harry Potter. Um, that's everybody's prime original literary experience now. Um, if you don't take that from them, you can build on it. It's really exciting to be around students who are, who are there for that. Uh, I had a friend of mine who told me that every creative writing student you have in like an intro class is usually in that room because they love like one book, right? Like you can introduce them to everything else, but there's some book they deeply, deeply love and that's why they want to write. They just want to make another one. Uh, and for so many of them, it's Harry Potter. If you walk in the first day and you're like, Harry Potter's dumb, let me teach you about Ernest Hemingway, you just lose them immediately, you know? Um, but if you say like, it's great to love Harry Potter, maybe we'll also love Ernest Hemingway, um, then, then you can do something and it's exciting. You don't have to give them up. I mean, that, that to me is like the long lesson of like my life in, in literature is that I can have both things and as many things as I want. And, uh, and I hope that's what students are getting out of spending time with me in class as well. Well, I heard you say on Brad Listy's podcast that 80% of the students want to write fantasy and science fiction and for them not to be allowed to seems like a pretty dramatic mismatch between what they want and what the colleges are. Offering. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, yes, I think the prohibition is partly writers thinking that stuff is, is 
is dumb in some way or that they should be doing serious literature and with all the air quotes applied to the apostle. Um, I think really it's often, uh, this is not always the case. Sometimes it's the professor covering up a lack of their, their own reading. If you say you can't write fantasy stuff, then you're not responsible for knowing how that works. Right. Like, uh, if you don't, if you don't read any fantasy novels, you don't read any science fiction. It's really hard to help people write it. You just don't know that genre. Um, so by saying that stuff isn't any good frees you from the experience of having to like learn it. Um, my own writing is, is pretty particular. You know, I, I think I'm kind of an atypical writer. My, my novels don't really look like a lot of other people's novels. I think it would be crazy to expect all my students to turn out like me. I don't think that would even be good for them. You know, um, I feel like my job as a professor is to read really widely and to sort of like meet them where they're at and be interested in what they want to make. And uh, it's exciting that so many of them want to make uh, fantasy novels and science fiction uh, because it gives me a chance to talk about that stuff as well and to learn from them. I mean, they know so much. You know how it is. I mean, I'm sure on this podcast, you're constantly talking to people who you deeply, deeply, deeply know these genres. And my students do too. You know, they, they've got a wide, deep, knowledge there to draw on and they they might not if they're trying to write you know you show them one dennis johnson story and then you're like do that it's going to come out exactly the same they don't have that same wealth of uh experience to work from the sort of uh art life so i don't know i feel like it's it's important to sort of meet them wherever they are i hope even if i didn't like it i would do it anyway for them um but maybe that's easier said than done yeah yeah so were there any uh responses to the Baldur's gate 2 book that stick out in your mind yeah, I think, you know, the interesting one for me is that my family reading it because so much of it's about that. And my, I'm the oldest of five. My, my youngest brothers and sisters are 10 years younger than me. Um, and so a lot of the era that I'm writing about happened when they were like either not alive or then the older parts I'm writing about are when they were really kids. And it was interesting sort of like they just didn't know about that part of my life, right? They were too young to sort of remember me being in like being 18 or something, right? Um and uh, and they all took it in interesting ways. Or like it was this point of like connection for us to talk for a while. That was really interesting. Um, I think out in the world, the interesting thing has been, of course, uh, both meeting lots of other people in my life that are already in my life that I didn't know were into this stuff. And you sort of find out that that they're, you know, also want to talk to you about it or are glad to know somebody else who likes it. Um, I've got a bunch of emails from young people, you know, 18, 19, 20 who feel the way that I felt when I was younger and felt like I love these books and I love these games. And I felt like, uh, they, they were important to me, but also isolating in some way because other people didn't love them. And those, those mean a lot, right? Whenever you write something nonfiction, I don't write a ton of it. Uh, that feels like people connect to in that personal level. Um, that's really great. And that means a lot to me. I know there were books that made me feel less alone in the world. And if this book does that for other people, that's better than the parts where we're just geeking out about how, you know, combat works in a 15 year old video game. <laughs> uh, although that's good too, you know, <laughs> not to discount that, but I'm, I'm really glad that that the person is there and that people connect to well, it. No, I think that's really important that, you know, people, I hope, you know, people can listen to a podcast like this and, and say like, Oh, I'm not alone. You know, and I feel like that's so much different than, than when we were kids. Yeah, I mean, there was just no way to 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 have that same connection in that way. Um, and maybe that's why all those books mean so much to us. You know, I think, um, you know, we we're talking about the Dragonlance books, like, ah, oh, we love those books, and uh, Lord of the Rings and things like that. And, like, uh, those are places where I, like, spent tons of my life, like, both in the actual reading of the books, but then, like, imagining them and remembering them. I have uh, nostalgia for... Uh, the Forgotten Realms, like it's a place I went on vacation every summer, partly because I think I went on vacation there every summer. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I really did. Um, and those places really do matter. And it's it's interesting to run into other people who have spent a lot of time in a fantasy world that you have also spent a lot of time and be able to talk about it like like a favorite restaurant you remember from Paris or something, you know? Um, and uh and there's something really magical about that that's easy to, to miss or to discount. And I, I think that's exciting. Um, so it was good to get to go back to the place for me. And it's nice to find the other people who also uh, also been there. Well, yeah, I mean, you make this point in the book, too. But, you know, m my girlfriend's about 10 years younger than I am. And so just from talking to, to her and her friends who are into video games and stuff, it's, it's, it's so much different because they'll be like, oh, like, 
you know, I got to finish this game up this week because this game's coming out on this date and this game's coming out on this date and this game's coming out on this date. And I got to like schedule it and play them all. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I played Curse of the Azure Bonds for like three years straight because I had, you know, no other games. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they just sort of never ended. You didn't beat them and you just sort of like stayed in them, you know? I, uh, oh yeah. The, the, the amount, I'm not sure I beat very many video games until I was like in college. Like, I feel like most of them I just played, you know? Um, I know I never, I have never beat a gold box game and I think I've played all of them, you know, yeah. uh, there is no way I saw the end of one of those. Well, actually, let, let me um, just say, so I think the only one I beat was Curse of the Azure Bonds. And so I, and, and like I said, I spent three, the last battle, there's like, you know, like 20 high priests and like 50 stone gargoyles or something like that. And I, I, it took me so, and I finally beat it, and it's, and it's showing the end sequence. And my dad's like, "Come on, we gotta go." And I'm like, "No, come on! I spent years trying to get to this point. Just please let me watch." He's like, "Nope." nope. Turns the computer off, and so I never, never got oh to find, my out, God. find out how it ends. That, that, see, that's a traumatic growing up as a, a video game no, player. I need, to, that's I need amazing. to write a Curse of the Azure Bonds book to like work through my trauma. Yeah. <laughs> There are those things where it's just like out of pace. I, you know, one of my strongest sort of memories of, I mean, it must have been middle school when it came out, but uh, when Wolfenstein 3D, like the demo, the first like shareware demo levels of it came out, I had a friend I was in Boy Scouts with who we are uh, starting to share some games and he called me on the phone. And I, you know, I was like a seventh grade boy who didn't talk to girls. I didn't talk to anyone on the phone. And he called me and he had just gotten this demo and he's just describing to me what Wolfenstein is like, right? And I'm just like seeing it in my mind. And I, and it, and I was like, I've got to see this. I've, I've just got to see it. I couldn't go over till like the weekend. And I was just like, it, like dreaming this version of this thing he told me about. And I remember uh, just like begging my dad to like, take me over to his house. I'm like, you don't understand. It's like this, it's like this. <laughs> I'm describing this thing I've never seen. And it was so important. Um, and, uh, and, you know, obviously it wasn't what he had described, but it was so great to like, you know, sort of be in those spaces. Um, yeah. What a bizarre uh, hobby it was then. And, you, you know, you're talking about release dates not mattering. I don't think I ever bought something on its release date until I was probably at least in high school. I think the first Dark Sun game that came out for the PC, I, I got on its release date because they had been having ads for it for years in the back of SSI games, you know. And I was like, those four little screenshots, I was like, I'm going to play that. <laughs> but yeah, they just, they existed. Like they had always existed. They weren't like new games. They were just games. Um, what a different world. Yeah, well, I can remember when, when Doom came out, you know, I had this copy of Computer Gaming World and it just had this little article with three screenshots and I would just stare at it for hours at, just imagining what it would be like <laughs> to play the game. And then, you know, one of my friends came over and he's like, oh, hey, I have Doom. Do you want to play it? And I'm like, what? It's out? You know, like you just, you had no idea what was going on. No. Yeah. I mean, the, the main place I, when I bought games in high school, I bought them at a, like a Walden software in the mall and it was just like this random shelf of games. They didn't really carry a lot. And it was like where we got stuff. Um, and it, it, yeah, they could be from like any era, you know, and I had no money. So you're always buying like the three-year-old game that was on sale. And, um, when, when good old games started up and all that stuff just became accessible again, I, you know, I'm sure everybody did this, but I bought like tons of games, loaded them up once and haven't played them because mostly they're like really hard to play now. Um, but it was so, it was just like stunning to suddenly have access to like every game I had ever heard of when I was a kid, you know? Um, yeah, it was like a weird nostalgia buffet. So what do you think about Baldur's Gate 3? Are you looking forward to that? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I, uh, I'm sure I'll play through that. I'm actually right now playing the Siege of Dragonspear expansion, I'm playing on my iPad. Um, although I admit to putting it on like the super easy mode because I just don't have the time to grind through the combat like I used to. Um, but yeah, Baldur's Gate 3, I'm sure I will play. I only uh, It's the same people are making the Divinity Original Sin games, right? Yeah. Um, I played the first one of those, but not the second. But yeah, I like that a lot. So it seems like the right people to be doing it. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what it'll be. I feel like it's Dungeons Dragons games have suffered in recent years, and it would be nice to see a really good one. Yeah, you know, my uh, former co-host, uh, current producer on this show, John Joseph Adams, he's, he play, his, his group plays 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons, and he's like, I just want one game, you know, one computer game that just is 4th edition rules, you know, and there's just, I don't think there's anything, not that I know of. No, I don't think so. Nothing good, anyway. 
Uh, it seems like fourth edition is so video gamey. Like it, it feels like, I mean, I didn't really play World of Warcraft, but it feels like it's built to be like a World of Warcraft version of Dungeons and Dragons. So it seems like it should video game really easily, but, uh, but I don't think they're going back. Uh, they, uh, the heartbreaking thing about The Last Garrison was that it came out, they were hired to write it when they were trying to make fourth edition happen. It came out when they were abandoning it. Uh, and they were like, okay, we're going to move on as fast as we can. This isn't working for people. Um, and our editor told us that because they were winding down fourth edition, they were cutting the map budget for our book. And so we didn't get our fantasy map in the front of the book. Um, I kind of feel like there's no reason to write a Dungeons <laughs> Dragons now if you're not going to get a map. And I was like, could we pay for it? Like what happened here? You know, um, I remember that being like a particularly big blow. I was so excited to, to get my, my own map in the front of a book. So I guess I have to write another fantasy novel. So I can yeah, get I mean, that. You pretty much have to, right? Yeah. They have to. It feels morally <laughs> imperative. So do you, yeah. So um, in terms of upcoming projects, do you have anything you're working on or that you want to let people know about? Um, nothing coming out soon. I just turned in a new novel to my, uh, to my agent, which I probably shouldn't say too much about, but, uh, but like I mentioned, like, uh, uh, environmental novel, uh, uh, takes place over a thousand years, um, starting in about 1800. So obviously goes into, into the future, um, and becomes sort of a science fiction novel about, uh, climate change. Um, and that was really great. I think, you know, writing that, I, mean, I don't know if the book's really great, but writing it was really great. Uh, again, because I think it was really an engagement with, trying not to write literary fiction that was inflected with science fiction, um, but to like really write a science fiction novel um, and really went back to science fiction as a, as a reader for the years of him book and, you know, read a lot of books I'd never read and read a bunch of stuff that I really loved from when I was younger. And uh, it again felt that same thing. It felt like I was really trying to write with my whole self by trying to do that. So I'm excited. I think this could be my first like real science fiction book uh, in the most sincere and, uh, honest attempt at it. Um, and, uh, and we'll see, we'll see how, how well I pulled that off, but I, I hope well. Yeah, that sounds great. Do you think you'll ever write any more video game books? I don't know if the right thing came along, right? Uh, my agents always tell me I should write a novel about video games. I actually don't even know what that would look like for me. That story hasn't sort of appeared. Um, they're hard to write from inside of, I think there's only a few things I think that I've read that I think really do that. Maybe, um, I would do more of this kind of thing if the right project showed up. Um, but, uh, but there are so many people writing really good video game criticism now that I feel like uh, it's sort of like trying to be a really great literary critic. I do a little bit of, of book reviewing, but I, I don't know that that's you know, where I put all my time. And there's so many good video game writers now that I, I might be a little uh, behind the curve. And that's okay. I get to read them. <laughs> All right, well, yeah, so I think we'll uh, we'll wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Matt Bell about his book, Baldur's Gate 2, from Boss Fight Books. So, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Nick. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Matt Bell for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Samwise Kreider, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.